Good morning. I usually do that early, earlier than right now, but uh, today we're going to talk about John 5. This is going to be verses 19 through 47. John 5, verses 19 through 47. Uh, John is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you get to John, and then it's just before the Acts of the Apostles. So it's John 5. Verses 19 through 47. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own accord, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. By alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We can see people in our world who do not want Jesus to be God. 
Many people in various religions do not acknowledge that Jesus is God. One way this happens is to simply say outright that Jesus isn't God or that he's just a prophet of some sort, an amazingly wonderful teacher, someone who had some special gifts. But God, no way. There are many in the world who think like this. There are also many who think that all roads lead to the same God, that all you have to be is generally a good person, that you just need to tip the scales ever so slightly in your favor. They'll say that Jesus never said he was God, and they will also say that there's no proof that Jesus is God. And then there are those of us that truly believe in Jesus. We believe that he is God, that he is the Son of God. We confess this. We speak to this truth, and we try hard to live life to this truth. But invariably, we are still corrupted. We are still dealing with sin in our lives. And so our approach to our still present sin is often to find something that we can do to prevent it, to overcome it. We are trying to do. Perhaps it's not a, a doing issue. Maybe it's a trust issue. Maybe we don't quite trust our God-given faith. We believe him to be God, and so we can confidently surrender those struggles in life that we are comfortable with, those uncomfortable ones where we conveniently ignore some of the commands of Jesus, say, love your enemies, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, those things we keep hold of, those parts of our lives we don't fully trust in Jesus. Instead, what we do is we quantify and clarify to help us, right? Love our neighbors only if they look, act, live, and love like us. Love our enemies? No way. How easy life would be for us to simply love those who are just like us. How easy for our lives to surrender to Jesus, to trust Him in those areas that we already feel good about, the parts that are not lived in sin. One struggles with images on the Internet, one doesn't. How easy is it to surrender that lustful sin over to Jesus when you don't struggle with lust? One struggles with addiction, one doesn't. How easy is it to surrender your addictions when you don't really have any addictions? Giving your partial life over to Jesus, surrendering that part that you don't struggle with is quite easy. But our text tells us that Jesus is God. Not just a partial God, but fully God. This is the very point of the Gospel of John to show us that Jesus is God. The Word of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, His voice is so powerful that not only will the dead hear, but they will live. If we hear, we believe, and we will have eternal life. Our text today has two points that help with both our believing and our trusting, the first of which is that Jesus proclaims Himself to be God, and the second of which Jesus proves Himself to be God. Now, just before our text, we find that Jesus has come to the pool and healed a man who has been lame for 38 years. It just so happens that Jesus comes during the Sabbath. This is not just a coincidence. He comes to heal. He comes also to show us that just because God rested on the Sabbath does not mean that God is not still at work in the world. In fact, Jesus says that he is also at work in the world. He is claiming to be working on the Sabbath. What blasphemy is this? The conclusion is drawn correctly by the Jewish leadership that Jesus is claiming to be God. And what we typically understand about the Sabbath, the seventh day of creation, is that God rested. 
Some may propose that God took a nap, that in some way God just took a break from being God. But how is this? When all things are created by him, they are surely sustained by him. Does this mean that when he rested, that goodness also rested? That love was absent? That compassion and forgiveness were dormant? Of course not. God is ever-present and active in the world. To say that God rested is not to say that God isn't present, nor is it to say that God is not active in upholding his creation, sustaining it out of the very goodness and love that is God. So what we have is Jesus healing a man of his lifelong infirmity. But instead of looking at this obvious and wonderful work, the Jewish leaders sought out something to accuse Jesus They were looking for a reason, any reason, to disregard Jesus. But Jesus doubles down. Not only has he done something miraculous and wonderful, but he also tells them just how he's able to do this. He says in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is not telling us that the Father is superior to the Son. This is a text that shows us the united relationship of God the Father with God the Son. They are in unity. They are equal. Jesus says in John 14:10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father indwells in me, does his work. Jesus and the Father are united. So when Jesus told the man by the pool to take up his mat and go home, it was God, the creator of all things, telling this man to pick up his mat and go home. But the Jewish leaders, what did they see? According to Augustine, the Jews saw darkness over the violation of the Sabbath, not light from the miracle of healing. Imagine all of those who witness this infirm man, this man who just picks up his mat and goes home. No rehab, no occupational therapy. He just gets up and walks at the command of Jesus. And then in verses 20 through 23, Jesus tells them there will be greater works than these that will be performed, not because Jesus is a prophet, but because he has authority over life, which also means authority over death. So if you honor the Son, you honor the Father who sent him. This is a direct claim to being God. All throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, or Psalm 139, for example, God is the purveyor of life. God is the one whom life flows. The Jewish leaders know this. They have read and reread these scriptures So it's not surprising that they would be upset at anyone who is claiming this authority over life, an authority that is only with God. Jesus is also telling them that there are greater works to come. We all can know this because we can read his word, the Bible, and we can know the rest of the story. If we have the ears to hear, then we believe we have faith. But the Jewish leaders, they do not have faith. They do not want to honor the Son, even though they have seen this incredible miracle. Their eyes have seen. They are looking at Jesus. They are watching what he is doing. Let us consider what verses 24 and 25 are saying. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
And the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus doesn't mention seeing. We have never laid eyes on Jesus, never seen him working a miracle. We were not in the crowd that witnessed his ascension. We know because we know the word of God and because we have faith. And in that faith is eternal life. Faith in Jesus gives us eternal life. Jewish leaders in our text don't know, even though they have seen and witnessed this incredible miracle. They have seen Jesus in action and they do not believe. What do you see then? Our text speaks of those who do not believe that seek to mock Jesus, to call him a liar, and Jesus speaking the truth. There are greater things to come. Just as God the Father can raise the dead and give them life, so too does God the Son give life to whom he will. Even if you have not seen with your own eyes the miracles performed, Jesus gives life to whom he will. It isn't seeing that is believing, it is hearing, hearing the word of God. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. That we can marvel at. In verse 25, Jesus says, The hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, the voice of Jesus, and they will live. As we get into verses 26 and 27, they focus on the fact that Jesus is God. They focus on the unity that God and Jesus have together. They are not divided. They are not separate deities. They are one God. So just as the Father has life in himself, meaning that he's not dependent upon anything in creation, so too does Jesus have life in himself. And in fact, Jesus has the authority of judgment because he is the Son of Man. Many of you, if not most of you, have heard of Jesus being described as both the Son of Man and the Son of God. It's important that Jesus was a flesh and blood human, that he had the nature of being human, and yet he also had the nature of being God. So we say that Jesus Christ is two natures, both human and divine in one person. This doesn't mean that Jesus is superhuman. Clearly, if you drive a nail into his hands, it will go through. The flesh will yield. Jesus will bleed. Jesus will die. We know this. Jesus is human. What it does mean is that Jesus, being human as well as being divine, he's the only one who can reconcile us back to God. We are told not to marvel at something, the fact that Jesus will judge at the end of times. It's a difficult concept to grasp, this human man claiming such a thing. It is difficult to understand the nature of Jesus just as much as it is difficult to understand that there will be a judgment coming. It was also difficult for the people who were watching this unfold before them. They too know that Jesus is human. I am sure they have seen him sweat, seen him out of breath, seen him going off to the bathroom, eating food, perhaps even choking on a bit of olive. Jesus is God and he is man. Because he is man, Jesus has submitted himself to the law. Because he is also God, he cannot sin. So he perfectly fulfills the law. He does what Adam failed to do and thus reverses the sin-death paradigm. When we hear of those who do good receiving the resurrection of life, it isn't saying that we need to just do good and earn our salvation. This is impossible for us to do. 
Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, so he knows his audience. There will be a time when all the tombs will echo with the word of God and the dead will wake to judgment. Those who did good to the resurrection of life. Those who did evil to the resurrection of judgment. But the question lingers, what is the good that we can do that we will be judged by? The revelation of God and what we can understand about the revelation of God are two conversations that we can have, but we read what is revealed. God the Father is not God the Son. They are two different persons. God the Son is not God the Father. They are distinct. Each person has something different that they do, yet what the Father does, the Son does likewise. So if the Son is walking on water, it is God walking on water. The Son gives life to one, it is the Father giving life to one. Our text says that the Father judges no one, but has given that authority over to the Son. If the Son judges, the Father judges also. If we honor the Son, we honor the Father who sent Him. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The leaders, they see, but they don't believe. We do not see, but we believe. It is our faith, our saving faith, generated by the Word of God, reaching us in our state of death, bringing us, perhaps kicking and screaming into the light of life, into Christ. It is our given faith that saves. Even we may not quite understand all that there is to know from the revelation of God, some of which we are not even supposed to marvel at. It is faith in Christ that saves us. That is what we marvel at. That is a good that we are judged by, the faith given to us by God. Jesus has proclaimed himself to be God. If we were present at the time, we too might be a bit doubtful about this. One man, and Jesus was a man, stating that he is God can be a stretch, especially in the light of some of the things that God has done through the prophets. Prophets have done some miraculous deeds as well. Jesus, as well as the Jews, are aware of what the Scriptures say. In verse 30, Jesus again proclaims to be God. Here, Jesus reiterates that he is united with the Father, not independent. He's not claiming to be a separate God, not another God, not an inferior God, but the God. In our faith, we seek understanding Verse 30, like verse 19, is not a text that shows the separate inferior Jesus. This is the text that shows the unity of God the Father with God the Son. If they are of one, then they will not counter each other. One judgment is not different than the other. As we have discussed before, sometimes the revelation of God can be difficult to grasp, even difficult to write about. Nonetheless, we cannot shy away from what Jesus is claiming, unity with the Father. We should notice something subtle in these verses as opposed to the preceding verses. In the previous verses, Jesus was speaking of God the Son in the third person. Here, Jesus uses the first person claim of his divinity, of his unity. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. I seek the will of the one who sent me, he says. And so now, as if Sensing the confusion of everyone, Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 that he recognizes that the testimony of one man is not sufficient in the Jewish courts. It is not considered a valid testimony. More witnesses are required to corroborate anyone's testimony. That is what it says in Deuteronomy 19.15. 
So Jesus will reference four superbly reliable witnesses to his divinity. The first of which is John the Baptist in verses 32 and 33. John the Baptist bore witness to the Lamb of God, to the one who is the Son of God. John the Baptist was issuing hope in a world that had not seen the prophetic words and actions of God for hundreds of years. Even before the miracles that Jesus has done, even before the start of his earthly ministry, John the Baptist is proclaiming witness to Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, giving not just one, but now two testimonies. Jesus is also quick to point out in verse 34 that it is not man's testimony that determines the divinity of Jesus. There are some that have a view which holds that God and humanity are so intertwined that God is responsive to the evolution of humanity. That the truths that are are not universal, objective, and centered on the only unchangeable and reliable being, God, but rather on the development of human culture. This is the theology of meaninglessness. Everything becomes meaningless, especially the personal pursuit of pleasure. It is Jesus who is quick to remind us that the words written here, these unchanging facts, are essential for our salvation. John the Baptist knew it. He was a burning and shining lamp, not to himself. John the Baptist did not speak of himself as the Messiah. He spoke of what we preach here at Christ the King. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. In verse 36, we have the second proof that Jesus is God, the testimony of the works that Jesus is accomplishing through his miracles. We know that Jesus performed many miracles. The Gospel of John details seven of these miracles while also acknowledging that he did many more. I want us to consider the works that Jesus is referencing here. I think it's easy for us to be caught up in the miracles that Jesus performed, his ability to heal, to feed, to grant life, to conquer death. These are things that we look to and pray for. I want us to consider one thing we may not consider a miracle in the sense that we attribute to most other miracles. Jesus tells us that he is doing the works that his father wants him to accomplish. Jesus is fulfilling the law, perfectly fulfilling the law on our behalf. By the time the works of Jesus are done, he will go to the cross sinless, blameless, spotless. He will go to the cross paying for the truth that he speaks and the sins that we accrue over our lives. Whoever has the ears to hear will have eternal life because Jesus has done these works. He's doing those things we can never do, perfectly fulfilling the law. In verses 37 and 38, we see the third witness, God the Father. He is also a witness to the divinity of Jesus. In some ways, this is true of all of the proof. He is a creator of everything. The works of Jesus are the works of God. It is by his word that he is revealed. His word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So if we are truly hearing the word of God, the witness of God, if we are truly hearing the words from the Bible, we are hearing the testimony of God. Now, in some ways, it seems like circular logic. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. And if you believe in God, you believe in Jesus. There is a mystery to it. 
But also consider that God did testify about Jesus. We have two specific accounts of God revealing himself to Jesus and others and giving testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. The first of which is when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. All of the Gospels record this event to some degree. Matthew, Mark, and Luke records the voice of God, with Luke also describing the ripping of the heavens, perhaps a, a peal of thunder as the Spirit descends like a dove. Likewise, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe a second event, a second testimony that is heard and seen from God the Father, and that is what is known as the transfiguration of Jesus. This is described in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's witnessed by James, John, and Peter, an event that Peter also makes a reference to in one of his letters. But if you do not have the ears to hear, then you will not hear this testimony. You will not hear the Word of God, the Word made flesh. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, we have the testimony of the Scriptures themselves. This is verses 39 through 47. Jesus does something very interesting here. In verse 39, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And this is what's interesting. He goes on and says, It is they that bear witness about me. Genesis 1 shows us the power of the Word of God. Let there be light, and there was light. John 1 says that the Word through which all has been created was made flesh, and now we have Jesus in the flesh telling us that the Word of God the scriptures, the Holy Bible testifies to Jesus. The Jewish leaders to whom Jesus is addressing hold in high regard the scriptures, the Old Testament. Their Hebrew Bible is the exact same Old Testament that we have. The same Psalms we read, the same Isaiah 53, the same Jeremiah 31. They have the same Bibles. They would acknowledge that, yes, indeed, there is a coming Messiah. It is prophesied in the Bible. But what they think the Messiah should be, what they are wanting in their limited human understanding, is so blown away by the actual real Messiah. It is so much more than what they could have ever hoped for or dreamt about, so much more than a king, than a prophet, than a priest, so much more that they have no clue their Messiah is speaking to them, looking at them, performing the works of God right in front of them. They are so deluded in their own expectation and what they have searched for in the scriptures and what they imagine and what they have summed up as God that they cannot receive God, the Son of God standing right in front of them. Jesus says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, and here is the reason why. Jesus knows what is in your heart. He knows what is in each and every heart that has ever beat. Jesus sees these leaders who are well-versed in the Scriptures. They know and can probably quote much of the Bible. They can tell you just where in the Mosaic Law you have taken a wrong turn. And yet, here stands before them the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and the One whom the Scriptures have told them about, and they are completely oblivious. They just don't get it. Instead, they have formed their own image of the Messiah, they are looking for the Messiah to be who they want him to be, a political king, a military ruler. And so he tells them, if someone comes along who fits your predetermined mold of the Savior, you will believe them. So how are you ever going to believe in the one true Son of God when all you are seeking is your own glory?
Jesus doesn't have to accuse them because the scriptures have already done that over and over again. So much so that they have ceased in believing. They ceased in their listening. Instead, they were seeking to be praised themselves. They wanted the Messiah to come and serve their needs, to lift them up in glory, to restore them to their place as a nation and a people of God. They were seeking their own glory. It's a mistake they have often made. It's a mistake we here also often make. We can be a selfish people. Even as confessing Christians, we can be very self-centered. We can be concerned about our personal well-being. We latch on to things that we see and that we know. We just know that they are beneficial. Money, for example. We see people with money and we think that the more of that stuff that we have, the better off we are. We don't give that away. We earn it. We store it up. We use it to protect our future. It doesn't just have to be about money. We can idolize many other things. This thinking started with us when we were very young. You ever watched toddlers? They're cute. They're wonderful. But they don't always share their toys, do they? In fact, they often ignore one toy, the one they were so content to play with to go after some other kid's toy. This thinking just continues. In school, we want the lunch that someone else has, the grades that someone else has. We want the cell phones or computers. We want the freedom, the job, the promotion, the pay raise, a better car, a better house. We worry about things we have no need of worrying about. So when we ask ourselves the so what question of this sermon in this text, we ask why does it matter that Jesus has proclaimed and proven himself to be God? Why does that matter? It matters because we have life in him. Through faith in Christ, we have eternal life. But again, so what? What does that mean? In my reading, I came across this beautiful little quote. It's from David Powlinson. He wrote, Your Father in heaven has given you a life that you can give away and not lose. Let me say that again. Your Father has given you a life through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is a life that you can give away and never lose. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, the living water, we will never thirst again. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God, two natures in one person. He alone can reconcile you back to the Father. Our messy lives, our still sinful thoughts, words, and deeds are scraped away, scrubbed off, polished through Christ. And we are presented to the Father not as what we were, but as holy and magnificent. We should have confidence and trust not in ourselves, but in Jesus. The word of God through which creation has happened speaks our name in the book of life. My friends, you are going to worry about things in this life. There are some scary things about life that we must face. There will come a point in your life where all of your life, even those things that you conveniently and perhaps stubbornly cling to, will be submitted to Jesus. All of those sins, those idols, the images, greed, addictions, all of it will be presented to Jesus. You will be either judged by those actions or judged by the faith you have in the one who died on the cross, sinless, the Son of Man and the Son of God, the only one who can reconcile you back to your Heavenly Father. 
You have a life that you can give away and never lose. Because we hear the word of God, we repent and we believe. For those who are here who may not believe just yet, you may not understand. You may want something more concrete. But remember, the Jewish leaders saw wondrous and miraculous things and they didn't believe. They stubbornly didn't believe. They wanted a Messiah on their own terms, but seeing isn't believing, it is hearing that is believing, hearing the word of God that is and has been preached to you last week, today, next week. Faith in Christ gives you eternal life, a life that you can give away and never lose. Instead of the pursuit of immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, how about pursuing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Not just for ourselves, not for us to earn that which we already have, but for our neighbors and our enemies. Perhaps they do not know this kind of love or fellowship. Trust in your faith, practice the fruits of the Spirit, and show those who are truly lost the way the truth, and the life. After all, they need the gospel just as much as we do, and you have nothing to lose. Let us pray. Lord, our God, you have sounded in our ears. Grant to us that we may earnestly desire, wisely search out, truly perceive, and perfectly fulfill those things which are well-pleasing in your sight. To the praise and glory of your holy name, amen.